Well, good morning. You're going to find that today's catechism lesson has a lot to do with what we're going to meditate on today. I'm privileged to meditate on the Word of God with you. Uh, Today we're going to be in Psalm 2. If you remember, uh, Psalm 2 along with Psalm 1 is the introduction to the whole book of Psalms because uh, the themes of these two Psalms set the tone for the entire uh, 150 Psalms that we find in the five books of the Psalms. And so I want to go ahead and read with you Psalm number 2 beginning in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The word of our Lord. Well, brothers and sisters, we live in perilous times, don't we? Not only the events of the past 24 hours or so, but also of recent days and weeks are a startling testimony to that fact. If we start with the big picture, all of a sudden North Korea is rattling a very real saber, unlike their habit of the past. We as a country are the bullseye for many people in the world. That's why we've been at war since 2001. This is the longest conflict that we've ever had, longest continuous conflict the United States has ever been involved in. Every day we murmur a prayer that those who are protecting us are going to succeed in keeping the enemy from striking us again in our homeland. And there just doesn't seem to be any real prospect for an end to it all. We've even got threats at home. There's violence and unrest and angry debate. This is what we've seen in Charlottesville this week, just yesterday. We've seen people take to the streets to proclaim something that is 180 degrees from the gospel of Jesus Christ, saying that white people are better than black people. It's a ridiculous statement. God shows no partiality, and neither should we. And yet, this is what's happening in Charlottesville. And the logical end to that rhetoric is exactly what happened. And a person is dead, and some others are critically injured. If you haven't already, I hope you've been praying for the victims of that crime. I 
pray that you've been praying for their families as well. They need our prayers. And of course, so do the people who perpetrated it. But you know, not only this, we're in a post-Christian era in the United States, just like the rest of the Western world. Our culture now explicitly rejects the cross of Jesus Christ. Christ is openly ridiculed. God's law is brazenly rejected. And people all around us are cheerfully breaking the commands of God. There's even mounting pressure on us in the church to set aside our Bibles in order to embrace profane views on a myriad of issues. Christians are increasingly judged to be hatefully intolerant, especially when we preach the Bible. We're being ostracized more and more, and brothers and sisters, real persecution is sure to come. So in many ways, it seems like the devil's winning, doesn't it? Seems like evil has the upper hand. Seems like we have an awful lot to fear and an awful lot to worry about. It seems like even God may not win this thing after all. It makes it difficult even to hope, doesn't it? But God has an answer to all of this. And his answer is in our psalm today. His answer is this. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I have set my king on Zion. Those are words of hope if there ever were any. You see, these words from Psalm 2 put all the troubles into the, in the world into the proper perspective. For God is declaring his absolute victory over everybody who oppresses him. Everybody who opposes him. God is declaring his absolute power over everything. God is declaring his absolute care and protection for anybody who turns to him. You know, last week in Psalm 1, we saw the stark contrast between a righteous man and a wicked one, a godly man and an ungodly person. We saw that the way of the righteous leads to salvation and life, but the way of the wicked leads to judgment and death. And so in Psalm 2, which is what we're going to meditate on today, Psalm 2 parallels that message, and it expands on the very real danger of rejecting God. But glory be to God, it also punctuates the enormous blessing of submitting to God. Our eternal safety and our well-being in this life is to be found only in submitting to God's anointed king. And so as we take a look at Psalm 2 by way of background, this is exactly the message that the Jews heard the first time that they sang this song. And they also knew that to oppose God's anointed king was to oppose God himself. And by the way, opposing God successfully, they knew, was absolutely, thoroughly, 100% impossible. Even the most powerful and well-planned opposition to God was doomed to fail if God stood against it. They knew this. And this was so important for God's people to know because the coronation of a new king, which happened on a regular basis... The the coronation of a new king was a dangerous time. A new king was vulnerable and unproven, and it was a perfect time for the enemies to make their plans to defeat the new king. 
And since he was God's anointed, kings like David knew that it was God himself who would give him the victory. And that's because God's people never forget his promise to David. Richard read that a few minutes ago in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, as part of it here. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so for God's throne to be established forever, that meant that God would always fulfill his promise to protect his people. Nobody could ever overcome God or his anointed king. This is the only way that such a promise could come true. But you know, after King David, God's people kept sinning. They kept turning to idols. And over the course of 450 years or so after King David, there were only a few kings who did what was right in the eyes of God. If you read through that story, it's heartbreaking because king after king after king did what was evil in the sight of God, not what was right. Only a few kings did what was right in the eyes of God. And so God allowed the decline and the eventual demise of the state of Judah in around 587 B.C. And the Jews were exiled in Babylon. And this ended David's line of kings, as far as they knew. And so the idea of an eternal reign of God's king seemed absolutely impossible. But after the exile, the Jews started to understand God's promise in a new light. The weeping prophet Jeremiah had prophesied about a new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31. He said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And then in verse 34, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And so in light of that promised new covenant and the fact that Psalm 2 speaks of a reign of a permanent and worldwide king, the Jews began to understand that God was sending an anointed one, that is, a Messiah. And that Messiah would somehow fulfill God's promise to David. And so all to say, the original singers of Psalm 2, they didn't know they were singing about Christ. But after the exile, the Jews started to realize that the psalm was a herald of the Messiah. And by the time of the early church in Acts chapter 13, believers understood this psalm clearly to be about our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Paul stands up to speak to the Jews in Antioch. And in verses 32 and 33 of Acts chapter 13, Paul says, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so from the very first time that a choir sang this song to God's glory in David's time, to the very first Christian who realized that Jesus was the fulfillment of this promise, Psalm 2 has always been a source of hope and reassurance for God's people because it means that God is faithful, right? It means that he's faithful. And not only is God faithful, but he is also able. God is able to successfully oppose every one of his enemies. He is able to protect every one of his children. And you know what? Psalm 2 bears the same message to us this morning, even though this week has been so unsettling. And this is a message that can reverberate into next week and beyond, no matter what 
happens. So second psalm, just to remind you, is the second part of this introduction to the book of Psalms. This is an extraordinary collection of five books of songs. The book of Psalms was compiled during the various stages of the history of God's people from King David all the way to Nehemiah. And along with Psalm 1, Psalm 2 was placed here intentionally at the beginning of this book to introduce two major themes that dominate the Psalter. The contrast between the righteous and the wicked ways and the promise of a Messiah who's going to save the righteous. And so as we turn to Psalm 2, the big idea or the premise of this psalm is very simple. The premise is this. Submitting to God's anointed king is wise because he's going to rule the world. It's the only wise thing to do. And so Psalm 2 conveys this in four different stanzas. The first stanza uh, reveals earthly rage and the absolute foolishness of opposing God. We see this in verses 1 through 3. In the second stanza, we see heavenly resolve, where God will raise up his own king to oppose his enemies, in verses 4 through 6. And then in the third stanza, we see a vivid description of God's absolute rule, and we find out that there's no question that God is going to win. That's in verses 7 through 9. And then in the final stanza, the psalmist reveals the only wise response to God, and that, of course, is to submit to God. So let's go ahead and dig in. Let's take a look at this psalm. Uh, As we turn to it, there's no apparent author. Remember last week we pointed out that some of the psalms have a heading in all capital letters that tells us uh, in those cases who wrote the psalm, sometimes some musical notations and maybe even indication of why uh, they sat down to write the psalm, the circumstances around the song. But in the case of Psalms 1 and 2, we don't have a heading like that. So on the face of it, we really don't know who wrote these two psalms. But in the case of Psalm 2, believers in Acts 4.25 quote its opening verses, and they quote the psalm to the mouth of our father David, your servant. And so uh, it is uh, also, they of course, attributed to the Holy Spirit. They say that David was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it is fair for us to say that Psalm 2 was written by King David. So let's go ahead and take a look at the first stanza here, where we see earthly rage and how foolish it is to oppose God. Verse 1 asks a very penetrating question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Why indeed? Why in the world would anybody question God, much less rage against him? Look what it says in Psalm 116.5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. Why in the world would you rage against a gracious, righteous, and merciful God? It makes no sense. Numbers 23 verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God is completely trustworthy. Why in the world would anyone even think of opposing a faithful and trustworthy God like that? And then one of my favorite passages in all the Bible, in 1 Chronicles 29, 11, says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. God is above everything. 
He's all-powerful. He's always victorious. Why in the world would anybody ever think about opposing a God like that? You see, there's no grounds at all to rage against God. He's done nothing wrong. He is perfect. He's righteous. He's merciful. He's full of grace. He's trustworthy. He alone possesses all power and majesty. Why in the world would anyone oppose perfection? Well, only those who are imperfect would oppose perfection, right? It's because of sin. It's because of the same sin that came into the world through Adam. It is in our nature, in our nature of every one of us in this room, to rebel against God, to want to lift ourselves above him. It is in our nature to say, no, God, you are not above all things. You are certainly not above me. That's what's in our nature. And so this is why so many people today strive to make God in their own image instead of realizing that they are made in God's image. They have it all backwards. You might have heard somebody say, well, I just, I just won't believe in the Christian God because he punishes sin. I mean, I can't believe that. Some angry God. What they really mean is that they've created a God of their own. This is a figment of their imagination who will submit to their sense of fairness and justice and whatever other qualities they think God should and should not have. We, by human nature, by, we humans by nature don't want a God who judges us because it's an acknowledgement of the fact that we need to be judged. We don't want a God who is merciful because we don't want to need mercy. We don't want a God who is full of grace because we want to be righteous on our own. All of this is because of our sinful nature. And so back to verse 1, the psalmist is asking us why the nations rage. The nations, of course, are the Gentiles, people other than the Jews, anybody who doesn't want to worship the God of Israel. And their sense of rage is as if they're a gathering mob ready to lynch God. That's the sense of their rage. And these people are plotting about how to get rid of God. And yet their plotting is in vain. They might as well take a running leap and try to jump over the moon. There's just no way that God is going to be removed. It's just not going to happen. God is not going to be defeated. And it is absolutely foolish even to try. And yet in verses 2 and 3, their vain efforts continue even at the highest level. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let's get rid of God. We don't need him. We don't need him or his anointed. Let's make ourselves free from him. Well, you know, during the Cold War, this is what the communist leaders tried to do. They did their best to try to get rid of God. They tried to take God away from the people, but it didn't work. Rulers are still trying to do it, but it's not possible. Even our culture is trying to do it right now. But Psalm 2 says it's worthless even to try this. It ain't going to happen. And that's because mere mortals are pitting themselves against the divine. After all, where are the kings and the rulers? They're on earth. And where is God? He is in the heavens. 
And so God, God has, as it were, the advantage of the high ground. But not only literally, but spiritually. This is, this is just impossible for the earthly kings to win this fight. It is impossible for anyone to win this fight against God. God is in charge. And yet they're waging war with the Lord. You'll notice in your Bibles, Lord is in all capital letters in this verse. This is how our English translations uh, indicate that in the original Hebrew, this is the divine name for God, the, the name that God chose for himself, Yahweh or Jehovah. And this is the same great I am in Exodus who told Moses in Exodus 3.15, Say to this people of Israel, the Lord, that is Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So there's no mistake at all about who the kings and the rulers and their people are opposing. This is the Lord who keeps his promises no matter what. This is the Lord who always wins and never loses. This is the Lord to whom belongs all power and glory and victory and majesty. This is the Lord who is forever. And yet they oppose him. They oppose the Lord and his anointed The Hebrew word for anointed is where we get our word for Messiah. And King David, before he was a king, set the example for how to treat God's anointed. Before uh, he was king, he repeatedly refused to harm King Saul, even though King Saul was out to kill him. David even turned down several real opportunities that he had to kill the king because Saul was God's anointed. Listen to what he says in 1 Samuel 24, 6. David said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to Saul, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. And even after king was, uh, David was anointed king, he was hounded constantly by pagan nations. They wanted to destroy him. He was even threatened from within. Even his own son Absalom wanted to kill him. And that man Absalom was against God since to oppose David was also to oppose God. And you know, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed at all, has it? Just like King David, people are against King Jesus. (laughs) They're at war with God. A couple weeks ago, an Australian pastor named Stephen McAlpine put it this way in his blog. He said, but deep down, the world seethes with hatred for Jesus. It burns with an unquenchable loathing, and it will be unquenchable for the fact that Jesus is king of the universe and rules it by his righteous word. And so this is why God's enemies oppose him. They hate the fact that God rules them. And God rules them, by the way, whether they oppose him or not. But people who hate God hate the lordship of his Messiah. And this is why they boil with rage and yearn for what they think is freedom. And this is what verse 3 is about. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is exactly what the world is saying today. I want freedom from religion. I don't want a God who punishes sin. I'm perfect just the way that I am. 
I don't want or need God's help. I need to be me, not what some angry, obsolete, patriarchal deity wants. I've heard people say that. People who hate God see him as confining and intolerant. They see him as controlling and angry. And the great irony is that they're the ones who are trying to confine God. They're the ones who are intolerant of his commands. They're the ones who are doing their best to restrain God and to make him submit to them because they are angry with him. And so they want to dethrone God. And that leads us to the second stanza and a display of heavenly resolve where we see that God will raise up his own king to oppose his enemies. Verses 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The idea of verse 4 is that God mocks the very idea that anybody could escape his control or that any enemy could overpower him and defeat him. This is just purely laughable. This would be something like if the smallest country in the world, the Vatican City, I looked this up, they're the smallest country in the world, they've got a population of 450. This would be like they tried to raise up an army from their 450 people to overthrow the United States of America. It's just not going to happen. There's no way in the world that that could succeed. And so that's one reason why God laughs. This isn't even a contest. It's indisputable. All God has to do is speak to be victorious. There's no question that his plan is going to succeed. And he speaks in righteous anger, a burning condemnation of their sin. And he speaks calmly. This isn't like anger that you and I have displayed. God can remain calm. And so he speaks calmly in his anger, but what he says terrifies his enemies, and rightly so. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This terrifies God's enemies because they don't know that they they know that not only are they going to be defeated by him, but he's also going to judge them. He's going to judge them. God is basically saying, you know what? You can try what you want but I've resolved to set my king right here and now and to install him as as my anointed one. And there is no changing that. What I have said, I will do, and my king will win. And Zion, of course, is where Jerusalem is, the place that God set apart for his people to worship him. And the fact that the king's coronation is taking place on Zion is just simply an emphasis on the fact that there is no question about who is anointing this king. It is God. It is God himself. And so the king's reign terrifies his enemies because as we're about to see, the king will be very victorious, absolutely victorious once and for all. And so now we see the vivid description of God's absolute rule and we see his complete victory. In verses 7 through 9, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron. 
and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You need to notice that there's a change of voice here. Yahweh is not the one speaking. He's being quoted by the king. The king is repeating Yahweh's decree that makes him the king. The decree that defines his divine right to reign over everything. And verse 7 is a reference again to the covenant that God made with David. This time in verse 14 of 2 Samuel 7. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now, of course, in David's time, this was figurative language. No human being could be a literal, physical son of God. This is simply describing a special relationship, what a son is to a father and what God's anointed king is to God. The king is begotten as God's son in the sense that today is the moment that God is coronating his king. This is the moment that he is begetting his king. Hebrews 1.5 quotes this very passage verbatim in Psalm 2 and along with, Psalm, uh, with 2 Samuel 7.14. And, and the author of the Hebrews, uh, letter to the Hebrews, quotes this in direct connection to Jesus Christ. And so this is speaking of the actual coronation of our Lord, the very moment that verse 6 speaks of, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so Christ is begotten not in the sense that he's created, but in the sense that he truly shares the nature of the Father. He does actually possess the nature of God, his Father, unlike David or the other anointed kings of his line. And so verse 7 of Psalm 2 originally was about the coronation of an earthly king, yet prophetically it was also a verse about the coronation of the true Messiah, the king who shares the divine nature of God because he is God. And therefore, that's why this king will never, ever, ever be defeated. And so the king continues to recite his divine right to rule in verses 8 and 9. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In other words, because of the king's divine right to the whole world, it will belong to him. No ifs, ands, or buts. There is no question about this. The father will give it to him just for the asking. And the kingdom of God will extend to every people in every corner of the world. And not a single person, no matter if they worship him or not, will be outside of his rule. But the thing is, God will treat the saved differently from the unsaved. But not a square inch of ground is going to belong to anybody else. And verse 9 tells us how that's going to happen. The king will put down all rebellion with all of his power and might on display, those who thought that their opposition to God was so profound and powerful are going to be broken. And the imagery here is so graphic because God's enemies in reality are so fragile that they will shatter like pottery when he strikes them. Now this seems kind of out of character for God, especially in this day and age since we there's a tendency in our modern times to want to make God all soft and cuddly. But here's how John Calvin, uh, John Calvin explains this. He says, This severe and dreadful sovereignty is set before us for no other person than, or purpose than to strike alarm into his enemies. 
Calvin goes on to say that such a dreadful display of God's sovereignty is not at all inconsistent with the kindness with which Christ tenderly and sweetly cherishes his own people. He who shows himself a loving shepherd to his gentle sheep must treat the wild beasts with a degree of severity, either to convert them from their cruelty or effectually to restrain their cruelty. So in other words, the good shepherd that we read about last week in John chapter 10, the good shepherd is going to do whatever it takes to protect his sheep, including laying down his own life for them. But you know, Jesus also rose from the dead with the promise that he's going to return again to gather his sheep into the fold for eternity. And to do that, he will break his enemies with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is the same kind of imagery that's used in three places in Revelation. For instance, in Revelation 19.15, when Christ comes again riding on the white horse right before the final judgment. And it describes him this way. From, the mount, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. Goes on to say he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And what exactly will that judgment be like? A little later on in chapter 20, verse 15, we read this. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There is nothing, nothing at all that even comes close to the danger of opposing God. The letter to the Hebrews says it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a dangerous thing to oppose God. This is a matter of life and death. But you know what? There's also nothing more blessed than to be a loyal subject of that same king. Because the Lord has anointed me, Isaiah 61.1 says, the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. You know, the sad fact is, is that people who oppose God are thinking that they're going to free themselves from God, as they say in verse 3. They're going to break those bonds and cords. But to be free from God means to be locked up by sin. That's what Isaiah is talking about when he talks about those who are bound. And in the words of Paul, people who want to be free from God are slaves to sin. They're in bondage. And what they need is to be set free by the protection of God's anointed king. They need to be set free by the power of that king. And But as Calvin notes, on the other hand, many by their ingratitude provoke God's wrath against them. And this is exactly why the fourth stanza is so important. The psalmist reveals the only wise response to God, and that is to submit to him. 
Beginning in verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So given the hopelessness of opposing God and the blessed joy that awaits you if you turn to God, the only prudent thing to do is to submit to God. This is the only thing that makes any sense at all. Submit to God by worshiping Him. Submit to God by serving Him and rejoicing in Him with reverential fear. This is the kind of fear that the Israelites had at the foot of Mount Sinai as God's glory thundered in an awesome fiery display above them on the mountain. The people were drawn to that magnificent sight, but they were also taken aback because that kind of power is frightening. And so likewise, we worship God because he's fearsome. We also worship him because he's a God who saves. This causes our trembling joy. God cares for us even in light of the sheer scale and scope of his glory and power. Isn't that incredible? This is the God who is above all things, and yet he cares for you and for me. This is why we worship him. We're truly awed by God's power and might, but we also want to love and obey him because he saved us. And so verse 12 warns God's enemies to submit to God instead, to kiss the Son. This is a kiss of submission and of worship. This is to say, you are indeed my king. And it is also an urgent plea to submit, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. And so we find ourselves in familiar territory because last week Psalm 1 warned us that the way of the wicked will perish, that it leads to judgment and death. Anybody who opposes God places themselves outside the protection of the good shepherd's flock. And that's why they're going to perish. They don't have the protection of the good shepherd. These are rebels without a cause and they have no future with God. And so here in Psalm 2, to rebel against God the Father or his anointed is to oppose them both. We cannot have one without the other. But you know, the opposite is also true. To submit to one is to submit to both. And so Psalm 2 tells us that we must submit and that we must pay true homage to both the Father and the Son because if we do not, he will pour out his wrath on us And then we will go the way of the wicked into the lake of fire. And so as we think about what to take home with us today, let's revisit where we've been. Psalm 2 proves to us that since it's utter foolishness to oppose God, submitting to God's anointed king is the only wise thing to do because he's going to rule the world. We've seen the foolishness of earthly rage against God. We've observed the heavenly resolve of the Father that he will raise up his own king against his foes. We've caught a glimpse of the absolute rule of the king and how he's going to crush his enemies. And then finally, we've concluded with the only wise response to God, which is submission and worship. And so let's take in the lessons of these first two psalms. Where does all of this leave us with today's headlines? 
you know, even though I've preached this sermon today and even though Psalms 1 and 2 say what they say, the dictator of North Korea still hates us. Terrorists still want to destroy our way of life and even our culture rages against God and his anointed. Those people who are marching against black people and whoever else isn't white are still going to march tomorrow. They will still oppose God tomorrow. And people in our culture will still be telling us to stop reading our Bibles and to listen to them. It's easy for us to wonder in the same way that Israel did during their exile. Wonder if God is going to keep his promises. How in the world could he keep them? Has God abandoned us? But you know, we haven't talked about one thing yet, and that's the very last line of Psalm 2. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is an echo of the first two verses of Psalm 1. Blessed be the man who delights in God's law, who meditates on God's law day and night. Those who delight in God and his law and who depend on him for safety are happy. They're filled with the joy and satisfaction of knowing God and being known by him regardless of circumstances, regardless of what's going on around us, regardless of what tomorrow's headline is going to be. And this is a blessing because God is faithful. And not only is he faithful, but he is able. No matter who opposes him, no matter what happens tomorrow, no matter who comes after us, no matter how much persecution we might face, our God is able and he is keeping his promise. He has set his king on Zion to protect us forever. And forever began the moment you first put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are being protected by him right now. And listen to how Jesus expresses this in John chapter 10, a few few verses after 14. This is in 27 through 30. This is what Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That's what I call refuge. Isn't that refuge? This is the safest place we could possibly be. This is the greatest hope there is. I have set my king on Zion. It puts everything in perspective. And so as we face those headlines tomorrow, we ought to have absolute confidence in God's anointed king, not just for our salvation, but also because of his righteous judgment. Evil is going to come to an end. There's not going to be racism in heaven. There isn't going to be anybody running people over with their cars. There aren't going to be terrorists there. There aren't going to be dictators of despot nations. And there's going to be no persecution of Christians. Sin and sorrow will be no more. (laughs) You know, there was rejoicing in the streets on the day that World War II ended. I've seen pictures of it. It was an incredibly joyous day. And you know what? 
we ought to rejoice all the more because God has already put his unfailing plan into motion and he will win. But you know what? In the meantime, God has put us here. And he's put us here to bear witness to the gospel of grace as people who have been shown grace. He has put us here to bear witness to his mercy because he has shown us mercy. And so the way that we display his glory here ought to reflect all of that. We're here to display his glory right in the middle of all of this sin and sorrow, right in the middle of the headlines that bring troubling news, right in the middle of the turmoil that's all around us. And brothers and sisters, even in anticipation of the persecution that is sure to come. You see, these things don't mean that God has lost control. Our confidence in God shouldn't be shaken at all because God uses all things to accomplish his will. We know this one by heart, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And I love the way Martin Luther uh, gives us a vivid way to think about that fact and it gives us a way to think about that fact in relation to Psalm 2. He said, who thought when Christ suffered and the Jews triumphed that God was laughing all the time? I have set my king on Zion. Everything that happens, happens for the glory of God. God uses all things. And what we've got is a tremendous opportunity to serve our king and to show the world the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and even that we can laugh in the face of evil because God laughs. That's how great our God is. It doesn't trouble him. He's not going to be defeated. And so what a great time to be alive. What a great time to be able to demonstrate the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. To be able to show people the the peace that we have because we delight in God's law. The peace that we have because we have submitted to his king. What a perfect time to show them that our God is great and he is powerful and he is glorious and victorious and majestic and graceful and merciful and righteous. Everything is his and he is above all. Let's pray.